This morning, we're going to jump back into the series, Through the Wicked Gate. And uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. When you find that chapter, stand with me and we will begin reading in verse 9. This passage of Scripture is one that is very familiar to us, hopefully. The Lord Jesus is speaking to his disciples and telling them how they should pray. And he says this in verse 9. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray together. Father, we echo the words of the disciples. Teach us to pray today. Help us to understand what it is through this text that you're teaching us about prayer, our position, what you're teaching us about who God is. And we ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Probably one of the Figures in church history that kind of stands out as being a man of faith, a man of prayer, a man by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller uh, was an incredible man of prayer, but uh, he was, most of the time we, we think back and we recognize him as the man who took care of so many orphans. Uh, he, he took care of hundreds of orphans over his lifetime. And uh, the unique thing about George Mueller is that he, he never once asked for money. Not once. Never asked for someone to help subsidize how he was taking care of the orphans. Never once uh, went to a group of people to say, you know what, this is what I'm doing, and I need you to come alongside me and partner with me. Uh, he never once came to people asking for them to support the ministry that he was doing. Uh, but he prayed. Every day he would wake up in the morning and he would begin praying. Uh, in fact, one day, uh, particularly, I remember this story in his autobiography, he, 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 he woke up in the morning, he began to pray, and then someone came to knock on the door, it was the, uh, the lady that worked in the kitchen, and she opened the door, or knocked on the door, he opened it, and she said to him, we don't have any bread today, we don't have any, we don't have nothing to feed these children, and he said, okay, he closed the door, and he got back down on his knees, and he began to pray. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. And by the time breakfast came around, lo and behold, the baker down the street had baked too much bread that day. And so he came by, dropped off a tremendous load of bread, just enough to feed all of these orphans and the Mueller family. So it's just an incredible story after story of how God provides. And, and so he, he is known throughout church history as, as a man of prayer. And he, he says this this quotation, I just want you to hear from him. He says, it is not enough for the believer to begin to pray, nor to pray correctly, nor is it enough to continue for a time to pray. We must patiently, believingly continue in prayer 
until we obtain an answer. Further, we have not only to continue in prayer until the end, but we have also to believe that God does hear us and will answer our prayers. Here is the great success of success, secret of success. My Christian reader, he says, work with all your might, but never trust in your work. Pray with all your might for the blessing in God, but work at the same time with all diligence, with all patience, with all perseverance. Pray and work. Work and pray. And still again, pray and then work. And so on, all the days of your life. The result will surely be an abundant blessing, whether you see much fruit or little fruit. Such kind of service will be blessed. What he's saying to us is that the life of a disciple ought to be a life that's characterized by prayer. We ought to be a praying people. We ought to be people who commit ourselves not only to time, but to passionate engagement of God in prayer. And so as we come to this particular message in this series today, I want us to focus on the subject of prayer. What does prayer mean for one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ? As we find ourselves in this text, Matthew chapter 6, we are smack dab in the middle of what has been called for years the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people. Uh, He's speaking to disciples, those who are interested in following him. And he's been talking to them about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about uh, how how life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks differently than life as a citizen of this world. And so he is speaking to them about this particular topic. And he's been explaining to them the, the dangers of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is something that invades all of our lives, and he's saying to them that disciples should be different than this. They shouldn't be hypocrites. They shouldn't be people who say one thing but then act in a totally different way. He's saying that your heart and your your life, your actions ought to match up. And now he comes in this chapter to the subject of prayer. And he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. That's what he says just before what we read. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Why? Well, he says that hypocrites, when they pray, they they stand out in the open and they they pray loud and long prayers and they, they just make a big show of it. Now, we've all been around people that do that, right? What I call it typically is preach praying, where somebody gets up and they begin to pray and they've got three points in their prayer. They might even have a poem thrown in there, but all throughout the prayer, they're quoting scripture to God as though he didn't know it. And, and over and over again, it just seems as they're saying all of these things using big words that make them sound really smart and really spiritual. They preach praying. But this is what hypocrites do when we pray because we want other people to think good of us. That's what hypocrites do. He says, don't pray like a hypocrite, but he also says, don't pray like an unbeliever. Or he says, Gentiles, don't pray like an unbeliever. Why? Well, how do they pray? Well, they go on and on and on. He says, they, 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 they heap up meaningless phrases. They, they continue to say, say things, but they, they offer these promises to God. God, if you will come through on this, then I will do this. God, if you will just hear me this one time, I'll, I'll make this change in my life. I'll do this or I'll do that. They, they make bargains with God. Why? 
Well, because they don't have any assurance that God's actually going to hear their prayer or God is going to actually listen and care or do anything on their account. He says, don't pray like a hypocrite and don't pray like one who doesn't believe, one who is not a follower. He says, but instead, this is how you're supposed to pray. You're supposed to pray as a disciple, as a child of God. So in this passage of Scripture here, verses six or verses 9 down to verse 13, I think we'll discover four keys to praying as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the first of these keys is this. Praise God for who he is. Praise God for who he is. Look what it, that first line. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I usually say it in the King James, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's what he's saying. Our Father in heaven, holy, hallowed be your name. Now, there's just a couple of observations that we need to make about this phrase. Some really significant words that are tucked away inside here that are really important. The first word is our. Our. Now, notice that Jesus says that we are to pray to our Father. Now, how often do you think of prayer as being in an individual activity. It's a solitary experience prayer. We're supposed to do prayer on our own. We're supposed to do prayer uh, by ourselves. But Jesus is actually saying something very different. We ought to be people who are praying within the context of community. We, we don't practice a solitary religion. We're not just islands of, of individual spirituality. Our individualism that is very much American about us uh, has, has removed us from the community of faith. When we pray, we're not simply praying for our own benefit, for our own life, to our own God, our personal Lord and Savior. Now, the Lord Jesus is our Savior. Individually, He is justified and is sanctifying us. But we don't simply belong to this one-person religion with us and God. There's a horrendous song that one country music singer sings about me and God, us being two peas in a pod and stuff. That is not the way that the Christian faith is to be practiced. It's not a solitary religion. He says, our God, our Father. Notice the next word. He says, Father. He uses the word Father. Now, this is, this is something that's very important. He says that we, as the people of God, are to address God as Father. Now, this is not a typical way of, of addressing God. For the first century Jewish person, this would not have been the way that they would have addressed God. They would not have called him father. They would not have called him something so intimate and so personal. But here Jesus says that we ought to speak to God in intimate terms. As though he is our father, as though he is, he is the one who, uh, who raises us and who is giving us life. He is our parent. In the Aramaic, it's Abba. Or daddy. This is a close personal relationship. This is, this is a, a personal relationship as, as one would have with a father. In fact, we ought to pray as if God is our father because precisely he is our father. And that's what John says in his gospel in the first chapter. He says, he says to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And these children were not born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. So he's our Father. But then notice the next word that's important, heaven. Where is God our Father? Where is he? Heaven. 
Jesus says that we have an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We, we, can, we can call him Father, but we also have to recognize that God, he, he's the one who's created everything. He's the one that, that reigns supremely in heaven. He is the, the great and majestic one. So Jesus carefully balances for us here the intimacy that we experience with God and the, the, the majesty and the glory and the wonder and the, the awesomeness of who God is. The psalmist says that the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness around him all the time. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and he burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. This is God. We have to praise him for who he truly is. He is our Father. We have this intimate relationship with Him, but God is also the cosmic creator, sustainer, and ruler over all things. Notice the next phrase. He says, His name is to be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. His name is to be hallowed, to be holy. And when He says name, He's referring more than just to His title. He's talking about his, his person. He's talking about his character, his authority, his reputation even. I was thinking about this earlier this week, meeting with our discipleship group, and, and our minds immediately drew back to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7, uh, where the Ten Commandments are given to the people of Israel. And, and, and the Lord says this. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, what is he talking about there? Is he simply saying, you can't use my name, my title, as a curse word? Oftentimes, that's what we've come to the conclusion of. And so we don't use God's name as a curse word, and we ought not. But is, all, is that all that it means? If so, that might be a very easy one for us to keep. If we were to never say something out loud that was blasphemous against God's name, maybe we could actually keep that one. But I don't think that we can. Because it means more than simply the things that we say out of our mouth. The word take literally means to bear. It means to carry off with. And when God is speaking about his name, especially in the book of Exodus, what is he talking about? He's talking about his reputation. He's talking about his reputation among the nations. He's talking about his glory. So the command is much more involved than simply taking God's name in vain cursing his name. It means that as believers in Jesus Christ, every single day we wake up as followers of Jesus Christ and we are carrying with us, we are bearing in our body the reputation of Jesus Christ. When people look at you, you are bearing in your body the reputation of Christ. You are an image bearer, a representative, an ambassador to the people that you work with, to your family. And so everything about your life, your behaviors, your actions, your thoughts, all of it reflects upon the glory and reputation of God. He says we ought to hallow. We ought to consider God's name holy. So we ought to be very careful about the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we act. So not only should we praise God for who he truly is, 
But we must also resign ourselves to God's rule. Resign ourselves to God's rule. Look what the next phrase is. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So friends, our hearts must be submissive to the will of God. We ought to be submitting to the rule of God in our hearts every single day. Now, this is one of the things that is so easy to fall away from. We have so many things happening in our lives, so many uh, activities, so many uh, opportunities and, and decisions and commitments that so often it's so easy to forget about submitting, consciously submitting our plans, our dreams, our decisions, our commitments to the Lord and his rule in our life. Think about the scene that you find in the book of Revelation. Here is this this awesome scene in heaven. You have four living creatures who are honestly quite frightful to think about looking at them. And here they are, they are worshiping God. You have 24 elders surrounding the throne. And, and in this text, in Revelation chapter 4, this is the scene. God is in the center. He is the center focus of all of the universe And these 24 elders are around him, and they are singing, and they are falling down. This is what the text says. It says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So what are these elders doing? Well, they're taking their crowns off, but what are they doing? They're casting their crowns down before the feet of God. Why? What is this symbolizing? What are they doing? They're saying, I no longer am king over my life, whatever authority, whatever power, whatever glory I once had, that is no longer something that I desire. Instead, I am taking that desire and I am placing it before you. I am giving that over to you. This is what the elders are doing. They're falling on their faces. They're giving their crowns to God. They're resigning to the rule of God in their lives. Friends, we have to do that on a daily basis basis. When we pray, we ought to be asking that the Lord would rule in our hearts, that he would receive the glory and the honor and the power from our lives. Each one of us, we have those things, glory, honor, power, and we ought to be giving those on a daily basis to God. What does that look like? Well, your glory might be just the the way that you view yourself, your own self-esteem, your own pride, your honor, the expectation of esteem, that you expect people to respect you, to treat you a certain way, power, the strength that you have in your life, the abilities that you have, the skills that you have, the accomplishments that you have. In what way today or this week have you given honor and glory and power in those ways to God? That's what it means to submit yourself to the kingship of Christ in your life. If we're going to resign ourselves to the rule of God in our hearts, then we're going to have to clean out the throne room of our hearts. Now, the truth is, 
all of us, we have different kinds of idols in our hearts. An idol, Stuart Scott defines an idol this way in his book, The Exemplary Husband. He says, an idol is anything that we consistently make equal to or more important than God in our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. So an idol could be anything, couldn't it? It could be anything. Man's approval, your boss's approval, your husband or your wife's approval, your parents' approval. It could be attention. It could be health. It could be wealth or pleasure or safety or comfort. It could be leisure. You just want to rest. It could be sports. It could be your children's sports activities. It could be significance. It could be respect. It could be the idea of fairness and justice in your life. It could be, it could be success or possessions, freedom or the idea of American freedom, money. It could be ministry, education. Your marriage, your spouse, your family, your children, traditions, being a perfectionist, workaholic, control, appearance. It could be anything. The truth is we have all of these idols tucked away. In fact, John Calvin, the reformer, said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. We just produce them. We produce them. And so we have to examine ourselves if we're going to resign ourselves to the rule of God in our hearts. That means we have to take a look at the throne room. We have to identify and crush the idols of our heart by repentance and obedience to what God has told us to do through his word. And sometimes it's going to be difficult. Those times that you want to explode in anger, you have to begin thinking, why am I so angry? What is it about this angry outburst that is centered on the idol of my heart? And so instead of responding with anger when we don't get our way, we respond with patience and compassion and we crush that idol. Those times when you want to talk about someone behind their back because it makes you look better, you have to crush the idol. The idol is that you desire to look some way in in front of other people, your appearance or your respect or your esteem. You crush the idol with your silence and instead you voice your concerns to God. Friends, that's what the study this summer is going to be all about. It's crushing idols, identifying the idols of our heart and crushing those idols. That's why I continue to encourage you to be a part of those life groups this summer as we focus on that subject. It's so important as a disciple of Jesus Christ that we learn to identify the problems of our own heart so that we can fight against sin, so that we can grow in Christ. So we resign ourselves to God's rule. This is the second important The third key to a disciple's prayer life is centered on dependence. Ask God to supply your need. Ask him. Ask him to supply your need. Look what he says. He says, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is saying that we have to be dependent on God on a daily basis. You have to be dependent upon God every single day. You have to depend on him for for the, the daily needs of sustenance and life. We have to rely upon God. It reminds me of the story that we find in the Old Testament about the Israelites. As the Israelites were wandering for 40 years out in the desert, 
They didn't have the things that they needed to eat. And so God supplied their every need. Every morning they would wake up and they would go outside and they would collect enough manna that had fallen from heaven for that day. Now, if they tried to collect enough for the next day, what happened? It began to rot. It began to stink up their tent. And so they'd have to throw it out. What's the point? The point is, you don't have to store up. You don't have to rely upon whether or not you picked up enough for the next day. You depend and you rely on God alone every day for your sustenance, every day for your life. This is what Jesus is saying. Depend upon God every single day for the things that you need in your life. He's talking about more than just physical needs too, isn't he? He's talking about spiritual life as well. He tells us to ask for forgiveness because it's through forgiveness that we experience abundant life. So he says, ask. Ask God to supply your need. Ask him to supply the physical needs. Then also ask him to supply the, the spiritual needs. If you want to have abundant life, if you want to have eternal life, the only way that you can get that is through forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is where life is found. Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He goes on and he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. So friends, on a daily basis, we, we experience the daily need for God's forgiveness to repent from sin, to turn away, to acknowledge the gospel, to trust in what Christ has done, constantly reminding ourselves that we are in daily dependence upon God for life. And that's why Jesus says in John 10.10, I came that they might have life. And not just any old life, but life abundant. So praise God. You begin to think about your prayer life. Praise the Lord for who he is. Resign yourself to his rule in your heart. Ask him to supply your needs. And finally, yield to God's perfect plan. Yield to his plan. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, lead us not into temptation does not imply, Lord, don't bring us to a place where we don't experience temptation. Don't allow us to be tempted. That's not what he's saying. God has already shown himself that he's going to, uh, to, to lead us in places that will be difficult. In fact, we see that God's spirit has already done both of these things with Jesus. As he's led him out into the desert where he's tempted by Satan. It also doesn't mean, don't tempt us, God. Don't you tempt us. It doesn't mean that because God has already promised that he will not tempt us. James chapter 1 and verse 13, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what is he saying? He's saying, don't let us succumb to temptation, Lord. He's saying, don't abandon us to temptation. Now, friends, occasionally we do succumb to temptation, but it's never because there was no other option there available to us. It's never because God has abandoned us in our temptation. It's never because God has left us. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is the one who is faithful. 
And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God doesn't leave you in your temptation. And that's the prayer. We pray, Lord, don't let us succumb to the temptation. Not don't let me go into temptation. Don't let me fall prey to what the devil wants to accomplish in my life. The devil tempts you to destroy you, but God tries you in order to strengthen you. And oftentimes, the circumstances, the relationships, the problems in our life, it's really just one coin with two different sides. The goal of Satan is that you would break, that everything in your life would crumble, that you would turn against God, that you would be destroyed. But the goal of God through that particular circumstance is that you would remain faithful like Job, that you would bear the fruits of righteousness, that you would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And this is why James says in chapter 1 of his letter, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Pray that God would make you strong through the trial. Pray that you would not fall prey to the evil one who desires for you to be destroyed, who desires for you to be crushed. So friends, as disciples, how will you pray? Will you praise God for who he truly is? Will you resign the control of your life to him and let him rule in your heart as the king that he is? Will you ask God, to supply your needs, physical and spiritual needs? Will you yield yourself to the perfect plan of God, even though that will include trials, hard times? Friends, let us be a praying people. Let's do that. God, you are an incredible majestic and glorious God. There is no one like you. You are powerful in that you have created all things and you hold everything together, Lord. Thank you for adopting us into your family through the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can call you Father. And Lord, it is so very easy as we live life every single day to act as though we are the ones who rule and reign in our hearts but teach us that if we are going to be disciples of Christ we cannot do this Holy Spirit help us to be humble and to resign to your leadership in our hearts and God we pray that where there are needs you would give grace that you would answer prayers Lord, that you would give healing, that you would help with physical ailments and problems and job issues. Lord, that you would empower us as we speak into the lives of those around us that have broken relationships, marriages that are on the rocks, children that are out of hand. Lord, we know that you hear our prayers, and so we ask you to intervene. We pray, Lord, that you would also move in our hearts, Lord, to to spiritually invigorate us so that we would be 
more disciplined, more able followers of Jesus Christ. Or for those who are here today and do not know Christ, Lord, I pray that you would wake them up from their spiritual death. You'd bring about resurrection in their hearts so that they might know and trust and believe in Jesus Christ. And Father, as a church, we yield ourselves to your plan. Lord, we know that there's very limited things that we can do to grow a church, to raise money, to fix buildings. Lord, in the end, all of these things are insufficient and they don't matter unless you intervene, unless you move, unless you grow us, unless you empower us to be evangelists to our families and our friends. God, so we yield to your plan. We know that it is perfect, and we know, Lord, that your plan will bring about the greatest glory for yourself and the the greatest good for us as individuals and as a church. God, we love you. We thank you today for all that you are doing. We pray that you would teach us to talk with you. We ask this in Jesus' name.